I'm Byron Williams and we're back with The Small Print and today our guest is Dr. Kate Devlin who is probably best known for her work around sex robots and her book that's called Turned On which we'll get into in a second but as always we generally tend to like to ask our guests to introduce themselves the way they would like to be introduced. Well thank you very much for having me on. Uh, so yes I'm Kate and I'm a reader in artificial intelligence and society at King's College London. I'm actually a computer scientist but I came into it in a very odd way via archaeology of all things and I'm really interested in then in how people interact with technology and after studying that for several well gosh nearly 20 years now um, one of the areas that fascinated me was the way we form relationships with machines and what happens if you know those machines could love us back would they ever do that and so I got quite interested in that and does it matter if they don't and how do we look at pleasure and technology as well because I think that pleasure is not often given much room in academia it's seen as quite a taboo thing and you tend to have to justify research into sex by saying it's for health or it's for psychology so I thought well, why not look at it for the sake of pleasure itself so that's essentially the work that I do there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of happiness but I absolutely love your background because you go everywhere from the past to the present right through to the future and I think that that makes a lot more sense especially when you're talking about the future of technology to have a pretty solid grounding in the past I almost wonder why there are not more people that have come out of the world of history and archaeology that are looking at the future of all these things that we're tracking because like in my work definitely I would say that you you can't look very far ahead unless you have a pretty good understanding about what's come prior so perhaps that's a, a good question to start with. In your work, how far back are some of the, the trends and technologies that you're talking about now? How far back do they go? What is our history with, let's go right in there, with, with sex robots? Oh, so far back. I mean, millennia. So we have, and certainly in the, in the Western world and, and the literature of the Western world, it goes right back to Greek, Greek myth. Um, there's a story about a woman whose husband was killed in battle and she created an artificial version of him and took it to bed with her and was caught. It didn't end well, these never end well. Um, but that, most of the stories we have from then tend to be about thinking about artificial humans. So even the story of Pandora, who was the first human created by the Greek gods, or if you look uh, at Romans, um, the Roman, po Roman poet Ovid uh, had the story about Pygmalion who created a, an amazing sculpture of a woman and fell in love with it and then brought her to life through a kiss. So these stories have down the centuries have taken hold and, and they're really very human stories, I think, about how we could create someone that is perfect for us. And so it's not really that strange to think that maybe someone wants to try and replicate that in technology. Yeah, absolutely. In many ways, the story of sex is the story of humanity. I mean, none of us would be here without it. Maybe some of yeah. us would be in the future, but going back in time, it's, it's very much a, a part of us. And at the same time, the story of technology is also a story about humanity's future. It's like we're building a scaffolding upon which we are able to climb and how high we are able to go. But at the same time, we're not really able to escape those really base desires that drive us, this desire to be loved to have something to love, even if that thing cannot love us back, which is where it starts to get really, really interesting. And that is the sort of satisfaction that we get from interacting with a technological replacement for a lot of those very biological needs. So I think that your research really senses in the middle of probably the most interesting Venn diagram of them all. So it's very captivating. <laughs> So, so to ask you a question there, in terms, in terms of that, 
how satisfied are we with the things that we create and what is the gap and is that a gap that you think we are going to be able to bridge going forward can technology replace our biological needs in your opinion or are we tending to find that it's actually quite a different story I think there's another answer, um, because I think that in, in some ways technology can be there for us and we can substitute things with technology, but in other areas that's not really possible, so we don't yet have anything that can hug us, right, so, you know, I, if, if I could make a, a robot that could give you nice hugs, you know, I would have made a fortune during the pandemic. Um, so there are there are things that robots can't do very well, there are things that technology can't do very well, but I think there's a parallel, which is, can we create something new? Is there a new area and does it give us new forms of relationships? And that's the interesting one. What are we, what are we not doing yet that we could do? So I think that when we think about something like a sex robot, and there's really only prototypes of those out there, they're not commercially widely available. Um, they, are, they come out of the lineage of the sex doll or the love doll. And there really are just slightly mechanized versions of that with a bit of AI chatbot thrown in. And um, while some of them are beautifully crafted, you know, you're never going to mistake them for a real human and, and not people don't necessarily want that. And the market is probably going to be quite niche. And I honestly don't see, certainly in my lifetime, that everybody will have their own sex robot. I think that's slightly unrealistic, <laughs> very unrealistic, actually. Um, we are very, very bad at making human-like robots. It's really, really difficult. It's really complex. And our brain recognizes that these things do not look human and therefore we have the uncanny valley effect we find them a little bit freaky so i think that there is um there's better things we can do we can start looking at what other forms might these take if they're not replica very heavily gendered form female forms can we move into something more interesting and one of the areas i think we'll see more of is the virtual or the ai companion because we don't have to make it look identically human. Uh, it can be represented in software forms, that's much easier. Um, the conversation is tricky, but we project a lot onto conversations with chatbots. So we're more accepting if things go wrong. And yeah, I think it's it's a lot cheaper and you don't have to store them. And so that's that's a big benefit benefit too. So I think we're going to see the emergence of more and more of these things. And already there are a few sort of companion AIs out there. Um, and I do see that as being a more realistic future for that sort of intimacy sphere. Yeah, so when we talk about sex robots, you're trying to almost fulfill two very different groups of needs, but within one sort of object. The one being purely physical, which probably can be done with some sort of device or whatever it is, whatever it is that gives you pleasure, by all means, go for it. But the other thing is more about that emotional or even spiritual connection that people are really looking for through a relationship which is where it gets really interesting and in what you're talking about there with the relationships with virtual chatbots. And I mean, the, the young men who are suffering from the she session over, over in parts of the East that are actually marrying some of these virtual reality creations. And that speaks to a need for connection rather than a need for pure touch. It's almost the one can be seen as almost like a consumer good that some people might purchase and discard. But the other one is, is almost trying to fill quite a different void in our society. And in that regard, I read a study that also came out of the UK that found that older people during the sort of COVID pandemic, after they had had video calls or virtual connections with their family members, they felt more lonely afterwards than they did before they had had that flattened digitized connection with their loved ones. 
which sort of begs the question whether these sort of virtual substitutes for real connection, I'm talking more about the emotional connection over here, are actually satisfying to us and enabling us to inc increase, as you were saying, our happiness, or if they are more sort of like a destructive kind of a drug where we need to keep on going back for our fix, but we never quite get there. And on this show, we've had David Pierce, who spoke obviously quite, he's quite well known for his hedonic imperative. And it just reminds me of the little rats that keep on going to get their, their pleasure fixed, but never actually getting satisfied. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and the, how, how much we can actually get towards <laughs> happiness through, through our devices. Yeah, I think we'd be doing ourselves a misservice if we rely solely on the technology for all of our uh, needs of companionship and intimacy. Um, but in, uh, in moments where we want to feel company, we're already substituting in different ways, like perhaps we put it on the radio or the TV so we can hear other human voices. Uh, people are already talking to their virtual assistants. Um, I have completely uh, anthropomorphized or zoomorphized my robot vacuum cleaner um, because I can't have a pet because I live in rented accommodation so instead you know my vacuum cleaner might as well be a pet so we find these elements of companionship through technology already so in some ways it's very natural for us as social creatures to treat this technology as social and I don't think that's particularly dangerous there's no delusion there when it comes to relying on that as your only form of companionship if that's damaging to you if, if you ultimately are going to feel more lonely if it's not giving you the fulfillment of relationships that you need then that's going to be a problem and so you know perhaps there are some people who will rely too much on that in the same way that you know there are some people who rely too much on on their phones or too much on, on, on alcohol or too much on, you know take your pick there are people who will uh, find it more difficult to set boundaries around the behavior so that could be a problem but um, we are seeing and um, we're starting to see more evidence trials and things like therapy bots, for example. And, and I, I agree with you about this. There is almost a kind of distinction between the physical and the emotional here. And sex robot prototypes like Harmony that um, Abyss Creations Real Doll make is trying to fill that gap by having the AI, but also the doll. And their AI is also a standalone um, chatbot app that you can download onto your phone and have as a virtual version. And interestingly, they market it very heavily in terms of companionship. So the language they're using on their websites, the language they're using in their ads is very much about there is someone who is there for you. She is your perfect companion. Uh, she will listen to you, you know, rather than pushing the sex angle. And sure, there are people who um, buy the dolls because they fetishize the dolls. But there are many others who buy them for completely different reasons. Some who like the, the kind of portrayal of a relationship. There are some people who collect them as pieces of art. There are some people who buy them and pose them and photograph them so there are multiple reasons but yes i think you know for we see it in the sex tech market there are devices that will give you pleasure and they do not have that emotional connection and then there are these ones that are marketed interestingly mainly at men and i wonder you know or is there something there that it's it could just be a reflection of uh, silicon valley being marketed you know most technologies market heavily at men but is there something there that assumes that women don't want that emotional or don't need that emotional connection or emotional companionship are, are people presuming that women get that elsewhere or are they just not thinking about them at all it's quite interesting so most of this technology by and large is heavily gendered and will take the form of a virtual girlfriend you very rarely get the virtual boyfriend 
That is absolutely fascinating. It definitely reminds me of what's happening when it comes to technology and sex, not in the sex robot space, but rather in terms of our means of consumption of that good by using technology. And I'm talking about the sort of big distinction between the world of porn and the world of OnlyFans, which has been quite a big dis discussion over the last year or so when a lot of people have been physically physically separated from perhaps their, their usual means of satisfaction with, with regards to all our basic biological needs. And the, the quite different ways that porn and OnlyFans are being consumed and also the needs that they are actually fulfilling. And the, the sort of studies and research and conversations around how OnlyFans differs from porn in that it is offering the purchaser, the client, the subscriber, pseudo relationship as well as a means of physical gratification, whereas porn is purely a passive response. It's almost like listening to an audiobook rather than reading a book, which is something I, I tend to make quite a big distinction of because one's an active participation and it's much more passive. Whereas with OnlyFans, you're essentially subscribing to a form of a virtual girlfriend. The only difference between an OnlyFans relationship, which is designed to make you feel like you are in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the, the generally woman on the other side of the screen, because let's be honest, porn and sex does tend to be quite heavily gendered in that regard. It's very similar to the relationship that you would have with a chatbot or a virtual girlfriend, because it's not a real relationship, but it is designed to sort of put you into that kind of uncanny valley of a substitute relationship, as opposed to just a substitute physical release, which I find very, very fascinating. And the take up there again with men, it does almost seem to imply that men do perhaps require some sort of relationship and not just a pure, purely physical fix when it comes to these things. And perhaps they are worse at going to find these things in the real world. So I think that is an interesting question, whether the, the disconnect or the, the gender distinction is due to a demand issue or a supply issue. Is it just yeah. because we haven't created these products, women, or is it just simply not quite as much of a demand because we are better able to articulate feelings or to go out and find real relationships? I don't know if you have a view on that, but I do think it's interesting that there is, there is definitely a gender distinction there. Yeah, and I think that this is, I certainly don't think it's some kind of intrinsic difference between men and women. I think this is a heavily socialized one so that women are set up in the social yeah. role of being the emotional gatekeeper who are, you know, are seen as being the, the sort of approachable and friendly ones who can form friendship groups more easily. So are we seeing then a reflection of that in the technology itself? And it, it may be the case that we are. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of both there for sure. I mean, it's very evident um, if we look at the technology coming out of Silicon Valley that it is created by men for men the fact that virtual assistants when they all uh, first emerged all had female voices or apple's health tracker had no menstrual tracking possible so you know we they women are seen as the afterthought despite being half the market uh, and interestingly if we look at the sex tech world we're seeing more and more female-led startups we're seeing more and more fascinating products coming out from women-led groups and um, there's a different taboo there in that um, it's almost the opposite that, that, of course, that it's more taboo for a man in certainly in in the UK, in the US, it's more more taboo for a man to have a sex toy. If you look at other countries like Japan, that's not the case. Um, so, yeah, it's weird how that's that splits up. So women are OK to have the sex toys, but not the sex robots. I mean, what's going on there? <laughs> It, it can have you can have the fun, but you can't you can't substitute the man, right? Or it's yeah, like so exactly. 
an attack a threat a threat to the place within within the hierarchy right? absolutely and there's a lot of that we see that uh down the years through sci-fi stories and narratives about ai that when you see portrayals of the fembots of the, the sexy female robot she's always a threat to men she's a threat to the patriarchy and she's going to upset the natural order by breaking her programming and the message is very clear is women do not step out of line do not break your programming that's that's absolutely fascinating. But the the I think one of the big questions I definitely wanted to get into you because a lot of people are quite concerned about the sort of social dynamics that come into play with having objects like sex robots, which by nature are objectified objects. I mean, they, they are literally designed to serve us. So their connotations there with our nasty history, with everything to do with slavery, right through to oppression, right through to sort of gender-based violence. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, do you think that is a legitimate concern or is this something that is perhaps on the erring on the side of being sort of technophobic? I can see where the concern comes from very clearly, yes. I don't think it holds up particularly well. And the closest parallel we maybe have is, well, there's several parallels. One could be computer games, which people were very worried about. If you enact violence in a game, does it make you more violent in real life? And you have thousands of studies were inconclusive. It looks more to like now that it, it's quite the opposite effect, that it actually it can be seen as an outlet uh, rather than spilling into real life at all. So I think we have echoes of that there. And, but you know, this is not helping body image if you're portraying these one of you know, these prototype sex robots as being you know petite women with large breasts tiny waist long legs um you know it's it, there's just a reductive stereotype that we see all the time in the media it's just yet another facet of that um interestingly uh, talking to the people who own dolls who um would most likely be the representative audience for sex robots and you know, this idea that, that this is men enacting violence is just so far from what I discovered when I was doing research, because the people who own these dolls really cherish them and, and look after them. And it's seen as you know, they're, they're held up as being something that should be treated well. And I, I did, someone did say, oh, well, you know, you're always going to get outliers in the group, but we don't really associate with them. But, but by and large, it's set up to mimic a very, um, caring relationship and the, the idea that people are using these dolls as an outlet for abuse and then it's spilling into real life just didn't hold up from anything I saw at all but I agree that this is the the, the form is not necessarily a good thing it's just adding again to to the body image problem so can we then move away from this female form and into something more abstract or interesting that's a very good point because that is something that I look at quite a lot in my, in my sort of work in terms of there's kind of two ways to look at this. On the one hand, we're trying to make humans more machine-like by using services like your OnlyFans, once again, it sort of devolves a, a human that was a very symbiotic relationship between, you know, warm-blooded creatures where we had sort of mutual gain in connecting with a partner and mating with a partner and all the rest of it to a very transactory type relationship that has once again been sort of flattened through digitization. And if you also want to take that sort of the, the gender issue there too, into how we are fitting ourselves into norms to sort of fit in with social media. So sort of we are machinizing ourselves by applying filters to make us 
less human looking and more plastic looking, right? So it's like we're trying to sort of turn ourselves into flattened versions of humanity. And of course, there's a whole lot of sort of socio-political issues that come on there too, in terms of the more we sort of surveil each other, the more data inputs there are, the more we sort of manage ourselves towards those data inputs. So we're sort of making ourselves more mechanical, but at the same time, we're trying to humanize things like robots, which is a, which is a very weird dynamic. I'm not sure it's particularly healthy. So what are your thoughts around sort of humanizing objects is that something we should be doing or should we be more creative as you say i mean if we if if the needs we're trying to fill are both physical and emotional can we fulfill them with objects that don't look like ourselves <laughs> well this is for us? I don't yeah know. i mean this is so interesting you, you you picked on such an interesting point there i i think that we are very good at differentiating between ourselves and the machines we de we delineate quite well so th this idea that we can code switch between social situations so i will talk to my daughter differently than i will talk to my boss or to my friends we are aware in social situations how we should behave usually and it, when we strike up this rapport with the machines uh we tend to be always constantly aware that they are not sentient but we like to address them as if we are because it's easier for us it's the way we interact best so I don't think anyone has gone into this with issues that these are more than they can be I think people very quickly find out the limitations of the devices especially you know since you, you give slightly wrong command to one of your voice assistants and it just infuriates you and then you end up screaming at it so I think that we are good at that and because of that I don't see a problem with you know the that there will, there will be a, uh, an inappropriate, shall we say, attachment. And I don't mean necessarily sexual, I just mean like a, a, an attachment that is in any way threatening to, um, to us. I think, though, that what we're seeing is a different category of attachment. So it's not the same as a human-human relationship, and we shouldn't necessarily try to make it the same. It can be something of its own. It can be something new. Um, perhaps the similarities, we can think more in terms of pets um but even then it's i'm not i'll get all the pet lovers saying it's not the same as my dog or my cat and i completely agree it's not it really isn't i'm just trying to think of an analogy it's perhaps more like that in that there is a machine that cannot necessarily voice to us anything um whereas pets can actually feel things but 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 not pretend that they can so anyway yeah going around in circles here but essentially um i don't worry about it because I think we are aware of our that the limitations of the technology and of our own boundaries so I'm not too concerned and this idea that it's not possible to care for something that doesn't care for you um I think that's kind of unfair because there are people out there who fall in love with other people who know, don't even know they exist there are people out there who have crushes on characters from books and from films you know these parasocial relationships that we set up they feel real to us and that's okay you know that doesn't take away the validity of our feelings that's very true and i want to go back to something you said in your previous sort of conversation over there when you were talking about how how people interact with these dolls or robots, the sort of few people that are actually into that, because as you've said, it's it's still quite a minority thing, how they treat them with care and love. And I think that's quite interesting is that this parallels to how our children play with dolls, right? So almost learning how to interact with what might hopefully one day become a flesh and blood relationship. And I think it's, it's an interesting conversation to be had there around 
almost permitting men to play dolls when they're fully grown is something that they were denied, I think, for many of us growing up in quite sort of conservative Western societies when they were children. Is this sort of a dynamic of that self-play and learning that's, that's sort of coming through, or is that a completely unsubstantiated observation? No, that's really interesting. There could well be. I mean, for, for many of these people, so the, the demographic that, that tends to... Um, by dolls and, and Belinda Middleweek uh, has done really good work on this. So there are there are people who are they tend to be uh, male um, of a particular age, just sort of young to middle age. They tend to have um, money, so they could afford to buy these dolls. So they tend to be in employment. Um, but for many people, they're in relationships already, or you know they they've had relationships in the past. So it's never this kind of isolated loner that the, the media kind of picks up on. So these are really diverse group of people. But for some people, some people who get those dolls and and live with those dolls, it is the form of um, a relation. It is playing a relationship in a, in a very sincere way. So yes, I think there's possibly an element of that as well. And that's another interesting point. So you're saying that people are not necessarily purchasing or engaging with this, these sorts of technologies as a substitute, but quite often also as a complement to other yeah. romantic or sexual relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are people who, you know, are in heterosexual relationships, for example, or a marriage who might have a doll or multiple dolls. There are other people who um, will freely admit that they, they don't want to have a relationship. They're happy you know, with, with them and the dolls. There are others who, you know, some people have partners who will join in. There's all sorts of things. So I think, you know, we, the, the media perception that this is just lonely men shut away in their bedroom. I think that's really unfair um, because it's, you know, it just comes across the more I learned, the more I realized that this is kind of a hobby and you know, it's a very sincere and genuine hobby um, and not the kind of last resources of the loner sort of thing, which I think is what's normally pushed across. That's, that's a really interesting way to put it. And also sort of playing with the questions that perhaps there are people that are purchasing these sorts of objects and companions not for primarily sexual needs, but for other needs. So almost like the, the sex component could sometimes be secondary. So almost that, that the existence of these sorts of dolls gives you permission to have a doll that you actually just have as a doll, right? So almost have a toy, not just a sex toy, which is really interesting coming back to those sort of twisted taboos, right? So like women aren't supposed to have certain sexual objects and men aren't supposed to have certain sort of play or relationship needs I mean sort of very yeah obviously stereotypically there that's a very interesting dynamic yeah no I think I think you're definitely onto something there I think there is that element isn't there it's 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 again falling back on those gendered roles and what is expected of men and women so let's go there what about what about the gender question because obviously gender is in question in our generation which is something that hasn't been in question in western society certainly for many many generations and how does gender play out in the, this whole this whole field? Are we seeing like, you know, gender queer type sex dolls coming to market or is it still very much a male female dynamic? Um, it is. Yeah, th that is possible. So there, there are sort of, they tend to be more the kind of custom built things. So the idea at the moment, it's still very much a split in, in prototype sex robots. It's still, well, it's still pretty much just the female form, the, the stereotypical reductive, almost caricature of a female body. Um, but there are, so a real doll X uh, who make Harmony have also created a, a male robot called Henry. Um, and Henry 
again, the gendering is there because they've had to, they're going to have to redo the chatbot because they don't want Henry saying the same things as Harmony. So Harmony is allowed to say, I will put on nice underwear for you, but Henry's not allowed to say that. And you know, why, what are the expectations here? So no, there's definitely not that, that fluidity that we see in real life, unfortunately. So there's, there's, you know, the long way to go still with this kind of thing, but, um, the options are surely there you know we're not we're definitely not tied to to this form but it seems to be the way it's been marketed right now there definitely seems to be a bit of dramatic irony there the sort of conservative bias of sex robots yeah right fascinating right <laughs> when you actually yeah. say it loud loud you realize it's gender norms it's it's very stereotypical in terms of how they played out and who they marketed to and yet it's supposed to be a massive taboo subject so idea of what taboo is seems to be very, very strange. Right? Yes. And if you think about what's happened in the sex tech landscape as well. So at uh, CES, was it last year or the year before, you know, they had a sex robot on stage, but they wouldn't let a vibrator company show, show the product. So, you know, like, what is going on here where it's okay for men to have this, as you say, you know, those men can have the full, full body AI experience of sex, but women aren't allowed to have something that will give them pleasure uh that is seen as being the taboo thing so what's going on you know this the double standards are incredible uh and so you know i always get ple- i always very pleased when i see the, the female-led uh companies and the you know, queer-led companies uh that are taking on the sex tech world and you know seeing what cool stuff can come out of that as well um because yeah even as you say in a taboo subject there's a conservative element for sure <laughs> And on that female-owned sort of entrepreneurship space in, in this industry, are we starting to see female-owned companies actually developing sex robots or are they going in different direction? Yeah, not sex robots, no. That's, it's such a niche field. There's really only a handful of workshops worldwide that are making these things, you know, a couple in America and a couple in China. And that's because they it's just so difficult to build those human-like robots. Uh, so the sex doll space, um, I'm not sure, actually. I know that some of the companies have women involved in them. I don't know that there are any that are actually women-owned or women-led. Um, but and in, in contrast to the sex tech companies, which have, you know, a number of, of women-led companies. So I think, yeah, again, there's that limitation there that it was very much a male-led sphere when it comes to sex robots. I don't even have a definition, which perhaps you would have, should have started with, of what a sex robot is. Wow. How would you define it? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> so there have been a number of attempts to kind of classify what counts as a sex robot. And um, uh, John Danaher, who is one of the editors of a book called Robot Sex, had had opened with you know a definition saying you know, it has to resemble a human and it has to be capable of conversation, things like this. Um, I mean, really, it's very hard even to pin down what is a robot. So there's no official kind of definition of what a robot is either. Um, how much autonomy does it need to have how much movement on its own does it need to have so in terms of sex robot the generally accepted thing is it's something that looks like a human um and we essentially it's at the moment it's really a sex doll with mechanization or automation but the reality you know there's none of these can move from the neck down or stand up on their own or anything like that so they're not really robots at all and if they were robots you know, they wouldn't have to take, it'd be much easier if they didn't take a human form. If you think of all the robots in the world today, very, very few of them look even vaguely human. And that's quite deliberate because it's hard to do and because the form, the function dictates the form. And so what are we saying about a sex robot's function that it shapes their form? Does it have to look 
like a woman for it to work or you know is there something else that could work can I get away with my what I keep referring to as my sex duvet that is a lovely cuddly blanket that will wrap around me and, and vibrate or stroke me or you know has a screen on it for reading erotica who knows you know we have technology to make amazing things and yet we're stuck in this very sort of I don't know, restrictive groove that we've got stuck again, in. Sort of very conservative technology, seeing the same yeah. things sort of over and over again, which is fascinating. But it does bring us to, the, I suppose, the, the biggest sort of questions here, which are, should we have rules? Should there be some taboos around sex robots? Are there some sorts of robots, whether they are hardware or software or however you want to define them, that we should simply not go to? What about robots that depict perhaps younger people? Obviously, that, that is a is a of concern. I've definitely read papers where people are yeah. quite concerned about normalizing some of those sorts of behaviors or normalizing some sexual activity with animals, for example. Yeah. Where are there lines that we should have both legally and culturally in our societies? Or is it a case of this is just a thing, so each to his own? It's really difficult um, to boost shift with culture and the law doesn't always keep up with things as well. And the, the idea, there have been plenty of cases made about what happens if someone makes a childlike version of these sex robots. And certainly we know that there have been creations of childlike sex dolls. Uh, in the UK, that's currently illegal due to a really quite arcane Victorian law about obscenity. And there have been people arrested and when their computers were searched, they find evidence of uh, imagery of child abuse and so these people were convicted and the big concern is that if this is if they are if these people are able to access a childlike sex doll that it will lead to real world offending in the same way as the images could lead to real world offending and it's really tricky because you never be able to run an ethical study on this it's it's so you've got to err on the side of caution. So there are people who say, well, perhaps if they had some kind of outlet, then this would never become a real life thing. Perhaps it's a way of um, being able to safely control these feelings. And then there are others who say we should never even try that. And the evidence suggests that it would escalate and it would lead to real world offending. So I think they're the best thing to do because this is because this mirrors a real world situation where there are people who cannot give consent. Uh, and are vulnerable that we should not go there so that is my, my take on that we don't have evidence to suggest that it has a positive effect therefore we should act with absolute caution there and you know it's again it's it's this thing about because it, it seems weird to argue for that and at the same time I'm saying but people are very good at separating fantasy from reality and therefore this won't spill into real life and and you know but but generally when our fantasies involve other consenting adults that's the difference. And, and it's not as problematic an area. Um, it's ethically a much clearer area uh, to, to kind of work with. So yeah, that's my, that would be my big fear. That's not an easy conversation to have because we've already sort of have a social norm that what is legal in the real world does not have to be legal in the yeah. metaverse. So you've got everything from, from video games that are hugely violent, for example, that actually encourage certain crimes. Yeah. So we already have a distinction there and what's what's legal in the real world and what's legal in our in our sort of virtual spaces. And of course, the whole realm of sex bots kind of straddles both because it's a hardware and a software component. So perhaps there's a different line to be drawn there. 
But I do think we're going to have to have these conversations all over again as metaverse becomes less 2D and becomes more 3 and even 4D yeah. as we are moving to that next phase of the internet, which is more immersive, more tactile, more experiential and more closely mirroring our real world interactions. So it's one thing to say that in like a Grand Theft Auto, you can shoot a granny on the side of the road in your game. It's quite different when you're now in a metaverse environment, for example, and being asked to do those same things to a much more humanoid looking character, right? So it becomes a lot more real. So we're going to almost have to redraw all of those lines once again. And quite often it's helpful to start with the most shocking example. You don't get much more shocking than like the sorts of, the sorts of avatars we should be allowed to have sex with. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's such an interesting thing. And I agree. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And we we know how susceptible people are to, to these kind of things. If we think of the Boston Dynamics videos that they get re released every now and again, and they have their dog, the robotic dog, and, you know, it gets kicked and pushed over and people are outraged, outraged that anyone could, could kick a robotic dog. And uh, even though they know perfectly well, the dog can't feel anything. And if you think about things like the trolley problem, which gets... Um, Give, all the time gets given as an example of how can machines make moral decisions and actually it's a terrible way of, of understanding how machines can make moral decisions but the essential thing is you know you're you see a runaway trolley going down a track um it's heading towards uh, a group of people if you pull the lever it will switch onto another track where it will kill a different group of people but what if one group is old and one group is young what if one group is has fewer people and the other you know how do you decide which way this trolley is going to go and um, people get really, really into this. Like they argue for ages over who has the right to, to live and who they're going to kill off. And you just think, crikey, just please never be near my hospital bed if I'm in a life or death situation. But what it really tells us, it doesn't tell us about the machines handle these decisions. It tells us how these decisions are made in the real world and what people's thinking is around that. So the wonderful big study that MIT did on this, I think it was MIT, and they... Um, they gathered in people's opinions from all around the world and they started analyzing it based on sort of country and background and you know age and how do people react to the different groupings and it tells you a lot more about people's ethics about humans than it does about machines so yes it will be really interesting to watch that play out in a in a metaverse yeah so that's the one side of this sort of legal philosophical question that is the, the how we should be allowed to interact with the things but there's also the, the other big debate that's going on in philosophical circles at the moment around sort of robot rights themselves. And of course, sex robots are once again right in the firing line because they are a more emotive issue than perhaps some other robots like even the Boston Dynamics dog or your, your vacuum cleaner, right? This is already more humanoid and we have a bit more of a connection with it. What are your views in that debate as to whether machines should have rights, whatever those rights might be, or, or not? Right now, so right now, I don't think they should, because obviously they're not sentient or conscious. If we were ever in a position where robots were sentient or conscious, and first we have to work out if they were, we might not be able to tell. It's, it's, it's quite a difficult thing. Um, I think it's a very long way off. I think we have to consider very carefully what would happen if that was the case. And at the moment, a lot of the robot rights work centers around things like liability, responsibility, ownership, um, things like that. But there have been a couple of really good um, books in the area. So uh, David Gunkel's book on robot rights was, was a really thorough dive into that uh, and said, you know, should we, ought we, uh, what, you know, should they have rights, ought we give them rights? Um, and really examined what the pros and cons of this were. So at the moment, I don't think 
I'm not worried about it at the moment because these are these are machines they cannot fail um you know can you be cruel to a robot right now no uh so I'm not too worried but I know that but I'm not a philosopher I have to say that every time someone talks about ethics they go but I'm not a philosopher so I could say that too I'm not um so then the next question is you know does treating the machine in a particular way affect how you treat other people um I don't think that's always the case uh, in fact I think again as I said earlier we're very good at switching depending on the situation we're in um so the next one is you know in the future if these robots could experience some kind of feeling or uh, awareness then should we think about you know give them rights and then I think yes that's the point where we have to do that that's a really interesting thing that you said just there that you have to sort of put the disclaimer on saying that you're not a philosopher so you yeah. can't really talk about <laughs> ethics that absolutely horrifies me as someone who's not too who's not quite an academic and not quite I don't really belong to any any of the sort of groups and I, I do find that a really interesting thought to say that that well, you have to sort of have a license to think about morality um, I wouldn't say it's necessary. It's, it's mostly me doing a caveat that if someone comes back and tells me that, you know, there's been extensive philosophical research in this area that I haven't quite read, that's my get out clause, it's more than anything. No, I think that any, everyone should have the right to comment on the ethics of the technology that you're using, absolutely. Um, the difference is that the philosophers know how to frame that in the correct way and have thought in depth about all the, <laughs> all the consequences. So what other people could... have thought about first, right? So... Yes. <laughs> so so they, they know they know whether, you know, the, the, they know the landscape um, and can help guide us through that landscape. But I do think that we, we need as many voices as possible uh, in the world of tech ethics. And we need to hear from the people who are not only using the tech, but the people who are being left out as well. Uh, so who is using it? Who's creating it? Why are they creating it? And who's missing out? And we need to make sure those voices are all heard. I absolutely agree. Uh, we had on the show a few months ago now, Dr. Beth Singer as well, who talks obviously about the intersection of, of robots, sometimes a bit of sex too, and religion. So what is, where's your work taking you in terms of the intersection of spirituality and religion with the world of sex robots? Because obviously if you want to sort of make something taboo, the, you need to sort of contrast it with religious norms, which is where a lot of our history of our taboos do come from. Have you looked at any of that? Yeah, kind of in a historical sense. So um, when I was writing my book, I was really intrigued about the the way that sexuality and sex has played out down the years and just what were the big turning points? And are we really any different from you know, medieval times when we were being told, don't do that, that's not nice. <laughs> the difference is no longer, you will be shamed in the eyes of God, not you'll be shamed in the eyes of the internet. You know, so what is what is this taboo? Where does it come from? And And that was in terms of sex and technology. And that was fascinating to, to go back and look at things like in the me in medieval times where there's very um, explicit instructions and some from, from bishops saying, do not um, do not have sex with, I think the word is like machinas with machines. Um, yeah, so there, there's, and, and even, you know, further back, is it frowned upon to, to masturbate with, a, you know, with a sex toy? Um, and there are, all, there are sort of liturgical rules about all of this sort of stuff um and, but then when we get to sort of, well, sort of explored right through the beginnings of the um the vibrator and then right into into the 20th century and even up until the sort of turning point for sex tech one of the big turning points was um the sex in the city episode with the rabbit vibrator and even that was moralistic that was all about how can we save charlotte from her vibrator she needs a real man so this whole 
this whole story about how how you know a replacement is not good enough and how you should behave and all this it's all tied in with a lot of religious angles on control but it is very much a, a patriarchal control i think most of the time yeah that's really really interesting i think to, to go right back to the beginning of our conversation where you spoke about the origins of some of these objects i thought it was quite interesting that you noted especially in light of everything else that we've discussed that one of the first sort of instances in history was actually a female who used an object to replace her deceased husband that i think is quite pertinent in light of everything that we've said and come paired to where we are today it's almost yeah. like we, we haven't moved very far it's really interesting so that's the story of Lauda Mea and she her husband went off to battle he was the first soldier to fall at Troy I think and then they'd only been married for a short while so she prayed to the gods to send him back to her and he came back to her for just it was three hours or something like that and then he had to go back to the underworld so she created a replica of him and some of the stories say it was in bronze some of them say it was in wax and um took it to bed with her and the the word used uh, so i have a wonderful one of my really good friends is a class assistant she has translated all this it's just like the word used is interacted and i just love that so is the so she was interacting with her replica husband in bed and a servant spied on her and uh, told her father and of course he was furious and he threw the replica of her husband onto a fire and she threw herself on afterwards and nothing ends well. And, you know, it's just this terrible dystopian tale, but the, you know, the moral is very clearly you don't, don't mess around with stuff like this. Definitely don't you know, build yourself an artificial lover and take it to bed with you. You'll disappoint your father. So <laughs> lots going on there, but yeah, then, it, and then we don't see another sort of, artificial male partner for years and years and years until we you know because the film AI gave us Gigolo Joe who was a male sex worker robot but even that was very romanticized you know he was a he was a charmer he was a wooer he wasn't about pleasure um so it's quite interesting that we've 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 just right we're still in that patriarchal sense of here is the perfect woman she is programmable that's, that's crazy. And we don't, we, yet we don't go around trying to program this sort of perfect man, or do we? Because as you said, even with the chatbot space, it seems to be still very gendered towards yeah. women. And even, even if you sort of look at the, the, the big chatbots that people have more platonic relationships with, they do also tend to be quite feminized, even if that chatbot is nothing more complicated than your GPS in your car. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's true. And and I see so many different excuses given for this. Like, you know, why have you gendered your chatbot female? Oh, well, people are more receptive. People prefer the voice. There's literally no scientific evidence for the stuff that they claim for this. You know, I've gone through them all and debunked them all. <laughs> this is not there. Or, oh, we just didn't think about it. That's the one I really hate. You know, <laughs> why? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think and there's, there's the tendency for people, I think, to presume that the female voice is more approachable and the male voice is more authoritative. So we've, we've fallen into that groove because people, that's people's expectations of it. So we, we tend not to disrupt that very much. Um, I'd like to see it disrupted, you know, start getting bossy female ones. That'd be great. That's a great question. So, so where are we headed from, from here? What, what are you seeing as the, the next sort of evolution of this, of this space? Are we going to get more creative with, with aliens sort of sex bots rather than more humanoid ones? Are we going to move to a more gender neutral future? Or what are some of the other trends that you might have noticed that point yeah. to where we possibly could be heading? I think that the, the, the kind of promise that AI and virtual 
uh, Companions gives us is, is a lot greater because we can personalize those, customize those a lot better. So we can make something feel like it's really our own because it's cheaper to do, easier to do, and we can tweak it more. Um, so I see that as being a much more um, scalable future than I do a physical robot. And but then if you think about where we've gone with VR porn, so these wonderful promises that VR porn would be an incredible experience. And then all that's being served up is first person point of view with some cameras uh, because it's so difficult to create content. It's so expensive. So I think, you know, all this personalization and this wonderful future promise future depends on how quickly and how easily that technology can be adopted. So in the case of the virtual companion and the AI companion, that's where we see interesting stuff happening because it's a lot easier to customize and it's a lot easier to pick up. In that regard, do you share some of the concerns that many academics have about us sort of escaping into the metaverse and letting our sort of physical bodies go to hell that <laughs> we start to build <laughs> too much of a store of value in, in the virtual space and sort of to the detriment of real relationships real value creation in the in the more physical space i think that there are always going to be people who take it too far but by and large we're quite good at moderating our access to technology because we generally have to you know we have to go out and go to work and function and we have to go and get the shopping and buy the food and walk the dog and all those kinds of things like that so um we do see every time there's a new and seemingly disruptive form of technology comes along, we tend to get very scared that it is going to take away some agency from us, that we're going to lose control. And we see it from everything from the printing press right through to TV to the smartphone. Um, and by and large, it passes quite well. We adapt to it. We're really, really good at adapting. We're very adaptive creatures. And so this it, it won't be an overnight shift into we're all stuck in our rooms like in Ready Player One or anything like that. I think we will get we will gradually adapt the bits that work. We will work out a way of coexisting with this technology. There may be people who who experience it, you know, negatively, uh, and then maybe we look at how we make that better for people. But overall, I'm not particularly concerned. What about your concerns or lack thereof with regards to humanizing sex bots or virtual sex bots, VR avatars that are based on real life persons? which is also something that many column inches have been written about the yeah. ethics thereof. So that's an interesting one. And, and different places have different rules about identity and what can and can't be used. So, for example, Doll will not make a version of a sex robot or a sex doll that looks like anyone else unless they have their express permission from that person. Um, but there are porn performers who have licensed their image for use as sex dolls, um, who, who make money out of this, who are happy for that to be done. So I think that there's a lot here tied in with consent and around identity and the legal side of that too. So I, you know, for example, I find deep fakes particularly freaky. I think that's horrible because there's a lack of consent there. It's taking people's social media information and it's putting it in a in porn or even in you know any kind of situation really without their consent and I think that's really unfair because that is it's it's appropriating someone's identity and their image and um I'm not I don't agree with that so I wouldn't want to see that happen uh so I do think there's a lot tied up there with permissions and things like that yeah, it's almost like using an object as a means to an end of pleasure is quite different to using a person as a, as a means to an end of pleasure if that person 
exists. Yeah, if that person consents to that, fine. If that person wants is okay with that, then why not? I think there is a really interesting space here where we start looking at um, data being shared, um, shared experiences. So, you know, if you have sex with someone in the metaverse, for example, what happens if you keep a recording <laughs> of this? You know, you know what? Who who has the rights to that? Who you know? Can you you know what information is going to be shared? So, there's lots of interesting stuff to happen there. Yeah, renegotiating what it is to be in a monogamous or even polyamorous relationship, like what's permitted, and is, yeah. is sort of metaverse sex cheating or is it exactly is it, permitted? Is it harmless <laughs> exactly and, so, and you get I get asked this quite a bit you know is it is it cheating if I have sex with a robot um, I mean, <laughs> well yeah it's like, exactly it is exactly that it's up to the person that you're in a relationship with if it's cheating or not I mean technically legally no because you can't get a divorce if your partner cheats on you you can't divorce the grounds of adultery if your partner cheats on you with a sex robot it has to be with a member of the their opposite sex you know it's so it's very particular in the in the in the law but yeah it's absolutely down to you and your partner or partner and i suppose the other the other half of the question was with uh, where real persons come into play is what about deceased real people because also on the show i've had tracy follows here i've spoken quite a lot about identity and particularly posthumous identity yeah as to who owns those rights, there it's perhaps less of an ethical issue and becomes more of a legal issue as to who owns your identity after your physical form has departed. Yeah. And this is, I find this fascinating. I've been reading a lot about this lately because I find it really, really interesting. Um, you know, this idea that if you can preserve your loved one, um, it somehow can you create, you know, a, a chatbot that is them? And there've been some interesting cases about that recently in the news. And more to the point, is it going to is it going to be helpful or is it going to just prolong your grief? What's going on there? How are you going to feel um, if this inevitably goes wrong or you know something happens and you lose recordings or you know just at, at what point is it becoming more of a problem uh, and or or do is it something you want to hold on to forever? It's it's really tricky. I don't think it's going to be the same for everyone. I think pe different people are going to feel different things about that. Um, but it's, you know, there are precursors in law around that. If we think about things like, uh, for example, if your partner, say, say you have a, a husband who dies and you want to use a frozen embryo for, um, to, to have IVF, you know, there's, there's lots of case law around that, but whether or not that can be done after the death of a partner. So perhaps that's, you know, some, somewhere we can look to bioethics. Bioethics often influences tech ethics. So it'd be interesting to, to see what's in that landscape. Absolutely. Interesting times ahead, but we've come to the end of our hour. So I want to give you the, the sort of closing comment there to sort of tie this all together. I think that the, the key takeaway here is that sex is about a lot more than just sex and that's machines and ourselves are very closely intertwined and there's no real clear lines, at least not yet, that we're going to have to draw out. But if you want to connect any dots, close off any threads or have any parting shots, the floor is yours. Yeah, just really that when we talk about sex and technology, we're really talking about what it is to be human and what it is to experience the feelings we have. And we're just manifesting them in a slightly different form than usual. So it's still very much an intrinsically human thing. And I think that it will remain that as well. So if we can use technology to enhance or mediate pleasure that's wonderful i don't think we're looking to replace human human relationships i think we might see something that is a new form of attachment or relationship 
but I don't think humans are particularly under threat with this because we're really good at being human and I think we'll continue to be human. Absolutely. If technology can enhance our human experience in terms of health, wealth or happiness or whatever we want to pursue, then by all means, go for it. But if it's becoming something that we are dependent upon, it's, a, it's probably a slightly different question as to where it's helping us and where it's harming us. And of course, we have to sort of navigate those, those waters one generation at a time. But thank you so much for joining me today. And where can people get hold of you if they want to continue the conversation, assuming you want to be found? You don't oh, yes. feel obligated. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm always on Twitter. So at Dr. Kate Devlin on Twitter, and you'll find me on there. Give me a shout. Thank you very much.